All right, well, thanks for coming to Theological Equipping class. We're all semester, uh, really all year, we're studying uh, church history, which might sound uh, to some of you super boring, but that's because you don't know enough about church history. And so hopefully, as we go through this semester, you'll realize that this is actually uh, a very exciting subject and a very important subject for us to uh, study. And so last week, we looked at the life, the work, the significance of, uh, of St. Augustine of Hippo, the great church father who had has exerted this uh, singular, uh, extremely influential uh, uh, kind of perspective on Christianity, especially uh, Christianity in the, uh, the West, uh, on the kind of Mount Rushmore of influential Christian thinkers. You have Augustine, you have Martin Luther, you have John Calvin, and maybe like Kirk Cameron or something like that, and, uh, and so really good company. And, uh, and, and we, we talked about a few of the controversies that Augustine is going to face in his lifetime, uh, last uh, week, we talked about the, the fact that uh, how to stall, solve the problem of evil was a controversy uh, that came up in his time, and he did that. He solved that problem. No big deal. I don't know what you did uh, by the time you were in your 30s, but he had done that. Uh, or how to understand the fall of Rome was another controversy that he waded into. He wrote his massive, uh, influential City of God uh, about that. But this week, we want to look at two other controversies, two of the, uh, the bigger controversies that involved Augustine, uh, and those are called Donatism and Pelagianism. Donatism and Pelagianism. So we'll look at those uh, in turn. Let's start with uh, Donatism. Let me give you a summary of it. It's there in your notes. The Donatist controversy was a fourth through the sixth century schism in the church that resulted over, <coughs> excuse me, over the question of how the church was to respond to men and women who had lapsed who had given in somehow in the face of imperial persecution. So once the persecution ended, how should the church respond? Should the lapse be welcomed back or not? And if they were welcomed back, do they have to go through some sort of a uh, penance or ritual or whatever it might be? So that's the issue. But to really understand the issue of Donatism, we actually need to rewind uh, 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 about a century all the way back to 249 AD. Uh, when a guy named Decius becomes the emperor of Rome. And so as he ascends the throne, the, uh, the empire is kind of wobbling. It's facing all of these pressures. There's uh, these uh, barbarians uh, who are at the, uh, the borders and they're growing restless. The empire is in this economic crisis. And, uh, and so people are asking, why is this happening? Rome is this world power. Why is it all of a sudden that the empire is beginning uh, to uh, wobble? And Decius, the new emperor, he has an answer. He says that the reason that the empire is struggling is because people had forsaken the traditional gods of Rome, uh, especially the Christians. So he blames it on the Christians. The Christians are not worshiping the traditional gods of Rome, and so therefore the, um, uh, the empire is suffering. So if Rome's glory is going to be restored, traditional worship must be restored. That's his sort of solution. So that's what he ordered. He said everyone had to offer sacrifices to the gods, and they had to pay tribute to a statue of himself, of the emperor. And if you complied with these orders, then you got a little certificate that you could hang, uh, you could frame, you could hang it on your wall, uh, and it says basically, I'm an idolater. And, uh, and so if you didn't do that, though, you were considered an outlaw, and then you were subject to punishment, even punishment of 
death, although the actual number of martyrs in this particular uh, persecution was relatively small because Decius's goal wasn't to make Christian martyrs. His goal was to make Christian apostates. He wanted Christians to recant, to repent, to worship the traditional gods so that uh, Rome's glory would be restored. And so he didn't want them to resist. He actually wanted them to recant. And so the tools in his toolbox to accomplish that task were many. He used promises of rewards. He used threats and, and even torture. Now, obviously, some Christians withstood all of this. They withstood the torture. They went through all of those kinds of things. And then they were kind of viewed as celebrities. And they were called the, quote, confessors. You see that there in your notes. They were kind of the heroes of the early church. Think of uh, immediately after 9-11 and you have kind of the, uh, the New York uh, firemen or police officers, first responders or something like that. Or, or, or think of the, the pictures you might recall of World War II veterans uh, coming home. Those were kind of the uh, confessors. There was this culture of respect and awe for those who had gone through the persecution and had not in any way uh, capitulated to the, uh, the empire. Now others, though, hadn't fared as well. They were known as the lapsed. The lapsed, L-A-P-S-E-D. And the lapsed included a wide spectrum of different people because different people had lapsed in different ways. There were different degrees of lapsing or giving in to uh, the persecution and torture. Some had uh, actually offered sacrifices to other gods, had bowed down to other gods, had committed false worship. Some had simply purchased these uh, these fraudulent counterfeit uh, idolatry certificates. I, I remember, I mentioned you have to have this certificate saying, I've worshiped the emperor. And so some just simply bought uh, counterfeits. Others had recanted under torture, but then while the, the empire is still going through persecution, they had then reaffirmed their faith and had withstood uh, future persecution. And so uh, there were all kinds of different ways that people had lapsed. And thankfully, this particular period of persecution was really brief. It was just a couple of years or so. And, uh, and so then the church had to decide, how are we going to deal with the lapsed? Should they be forgiven? Should they be immediately welcomed back in the church? Should they be welcomed back in the church, but only after they've paid some sort of a penance? Should they be forever excluded? Because Christ says, uh, whoever denies me, I will Denied. So the battle lines were drawn between these two men, Cyprian of Carthage and Novation. Cyprian had become the bishop of Carthage shortly before the persecution. And then whenever the persecution breaks out, he then left. He fled to this secure location where he could then spend his time engaging in written correspondence with his Flock. Now, one thing you need to know about this particular period in church history is that there is this extreme cultural fascination with the idea of martyrdom. We've talked about that a little bit uh, before uh, um, this year, but when it comes to the question of martyrdom, there are really two dangers that we have to avoid. The first one is really obvious, and that is that you kind of avoid martyrdom at all costs, even at the expense of your faith, that you would actually recant in the face of persecution, that you would actually apostatize, that you would deny Christ in order to save your life. Obviously, that's one danger that we want to avoid when it comes to martyrdom. But the other danger, and the one that we see primarily in the early church, is this fierce obsession with martyrdom, this legalistic sort of pride where not only does one accept martyrdom, but actually kind of chases after it. And that was more the, the rigorous position 
that opposed Cyprian and his actions. So uh, in this context, Cyprian fleeing from Carthage in order to, uh, to, to spend uh, his time engaging in written correspondence with his flock was denounced. Rather than running toward persecution, which was this sort of, sort of cultural ideal, Cyprian had run from it. Anyone remember when uh, the big controversy over Ted Cruz flying to Mexico in the face of uh, Snowmageddon in February? That's kind of what uh, is happening here, only bigger. Now, Cyprian's response is that he didn't do this out of cowardice. He didn't do this out of fear. He rather did it because it's better for his flock. And that might sound like a convenient sort of uh, excuse, and you might initially be suspicious of his motives until you actually learn the facts which is that a few years later, during another period of persecution, he was again given the chance to recant or face exile. And he said, I'll choose exile then. And then a year later, he was brought back from exile and again given a chance to recant or this time face execution. And Cyprian was said to remove his own garments, knelt down, blindfolded himself and prayed as he was being beheaded. So this is not a coward, this is not an apostate. But back to the controversy. Cyprian had fled the persecution, and so his authority was immediately questioned by the confessors who had stayed under the persecution. Remember, the confessors are the kind of Christian celebrities who had remained steadfast in the midst of persecution. And then there was an even larger split, not only regarding Cyprian, but an even larger split as some confessors thought that they should kind of readmit anyone who had lapsed kind of immediately. Now that the persecution has ended, let's just admit anybody who wants to come back into the church, uh, back into the church, and others did not. Others said, no, we can't admit them back into the church because they have denied Christ and thus Christ has denied them. They're no longer part of the bride. And so this synod or a council was called and it was decided that the way in which you lapsed would determine how you were subsequently dealt with now that the persecution was past. If you merely obtained this fraudulent certificate, you just went and you bought a counterfeit certificate, but you hadn't sacrificed to other gods, then you could be readmitted immediately. You didn't have to do anything. On the other hand, those who had actually sacrificed to other gods, but had then repented, had reaffirmed their faith in the midst of the persecution, they would be readmitted, but only on their deathbed. Or if this new persecution uh, broke out and gave them an opportunity to prove their sincerity. But the synod decided at the same time that those who had sacrificed and had never showed any signs of repentance would never be readmitted into the church. And so this was the, the decision of the synod or the council. And then in 251... Cyprian uh, wrote a work called The Unity of the Catholic Church, where he defended two major beliefs, two major beliefs. The first one is that schism, which is the breaking away from the church, he said schism is completely unjustified. The unity of the church cannot be broken. For Cyprian to step outside the church is to forfeit salvation. You might have heard the line before, you cannot have God as, uh, as father unless you have the church as mother. That's Cyprian, he wrote that. And so that was the first belief that schism is completely unjustified. And his second uh, point there in uh, the unity of the Catholic Church was that any a schismatic bishop is deprived of his authority by virtue of severing the church. If you're a bishop and you cause schism, that you are no, no longer authoritative because you have severed the church. As a result of that, any ordination, any baptism 
any ordinance that a bishop performs is also invalid. So Cyprian was kind of driven by these two competing desires. The first, he doesn't want to too easily readmit (coughs) those who had actually lapsed. And then second though, he does want to show a degree of forgiveness and preserve the unity of the church. Now, his opponent was Novation. And Novation, on the other hand, was much more severe than Cyprian and less willing to readmit the lapsed. Unfortunately, neither the followers, uh, so Cyprian and Novation are kind of engaged in this game of chicken to see who will blink first, and, uh, and neither of them actually do so. And this schism actually lasts for generations. And that's all background. We haven't even gotten to Donatism yet, but the background is essential because the Donatist controversy is very similar in that it's a response to the issue of those who lapse during a subsequent persecution. And Cyprian's argument is going to play a central role in uh, Donatism. So for Donatism, we need to fast forward from the events of Cyprian innovation about 50 years, so <coughs> about one generation later, another persecution breaks out under the emperor Diocletian. Some of you might have heard of Diocletian uh, before. This was the last, this is the most severe period of imperial persecution uh, in the entire early church. It lasted from about 303 until 313 with the, uh, the issuance of the Edict of Milan, which guaranteed Christians toleration of religion in the empire. And as in other, relig- uh, uh, other periods, uh, some Christians were martyred. In fact, thousands of Christians were martyred in this period. Again, it's, it's the most severe and, uh, and the final uh, uh, period of imperial persecution. So some were martyred, others had apostatized, uh, others had uh, found kind of clever ways like those who had previously purchased fraudulent certificates. For example, when the authorities would show up and they said they want to burn all of the Christian writings, they want to find all of the, the, uh, the scriptures, they want to find all of the writings of influential Christians, some bishops just handed them the works of heretics. Since Roman officials really wouldn't, uh, since pagans really wouldn't know the difference between orthodox and heterodox uh, theology, it'd be like someone asking me to burn a Bible, so I burned the Quran or the Book of Mormon or your best life now or some blog by Jared or something like that. So others uh, had actually turned over scripture and, uh, and their argument was that it's, uh, uh, it's better to preserve life, that's more important than just one copy of Scripture, And then as with the Novation controversy, those who remained steadfast in the midst of this persecution, when it finally ended, were celebrated. They were called, again, the confessors. While those who handed over Scripture were criticized, they were called uh, those who handed over or those who betrayed in Latin traditores, from which we get the word traitor. They were called traitors. So you have the confessors and you have the traditores or the traitors. And this all came to a head in all places of Carthage, the exact same city in which the Novation controversy had occurred. Here's what happened. So shortly after the persecution ends, uh, the, the bishopric of Carthage was empty. There was not a bishop in Carthage. And Carthage is a very influential city, so they have to fill, fill that particular bishopric. And a guy named Sicilian was elected. I might not be pronouncing that correct. My Latin's not good. Uh, in other words, it's non-existent. But that didn't sit well 
with uh, the more sort of rigorous confessors who wanted the traitors to be punished. So Sicilian was kind of seen as more of a moderate. And so the confessors, the, the more rigorous ones, wanted uh, to have someone who was a bit more rigorous. And so they had their own election. They had a separate election and they elected a particular guy. I think his name is Majorinus or something like that. But he died almost immediately thereafter. And so he was replaced by Donatus, from which we get the word or the, the name of the controversy, Donatism. So Donatus was this rigorous, uh, so you now have Sicilian and you have Donatus. And this is, uh, this is a problem because you can't have two bishops in one city. So who would the rest of the church recognize as being the legitimate bishop? Well, Rome and the other important cities said that Sicilian was legit. And so Constantine who's the new emperor at the time, followed their lead. But Donatus had this sort of ace up his sleeve. Uh, And that was one of the bishops who had consecrated Sicilian, a guy named Felix Aptunga. He said, this guy's a traditoris. This guy's a traitor. This guy had actually delivered scripture up to the Roman authority. So Donatus said, this Felix guy is an invalid bishop. And thus, on the basis of what Cyprian had said, anyone he has uh, has validated is also invalid. Like, oh, I don't know, maybe Sicilian, my arch enemy. And so Sicilian and his supporters said, well, hang on a second. First, that bishop, Philip Saktunga, wasn't actually a traitor. He didn't do what you're saying. That's fake news. Now, I don't know personally if uh, Felix Abtunga was actually a traitor or not. Sources are really conflicted as to his actual guilt or innocence, but that's what they said. They said he wasn't actually guilty of it. But the second, they said even if he was, even if he was a traitor, even if Felix was guilty, that wouldn't therefore necessarily invalidate Sicilian. But that was the issue, whether the ordination or the consecration or the baptism performed by this defiled this immoral bishop was valid or if the baptism or ordinance uh, or ordination was also going to be defiled. If the person is defiled, is the work that they do defiled as well? And the Donatist said that the validity of the act depends on the worthiness of the actor. The validity of the act depends on the worthiness of the actor. If the bishop is defiled, every baptism, every communion, every ordination, everything he does is therefore going to be perverted as well. And Sicilian said, nuh-uh, that's not true. That would be a big problem for reasons (coughs) that we'll talk about shortly. But this goes even further because for Donatus and for his followers, if Sicilian's consecration was invalid, then so are all those whom he has uh, ordained and this is a really big deal, so are the sacraments which they distributed to the church. In other words, baptism and communion were now at stake. Imagine that, think about that. If the person who baptized you is actually secretly immoral, for whatever reason, whatever it is, he's actually secretly immoral, then according to the Donatist, your baptism is invalid. And if the guy who gives you communion every week is immoral, then your communion isn't authentic. You've never actually communed with Christ in the Lord's Supper. So you can see how quickly this begins to spiral and get out of hand. And both sides actually appealed to Cyprian, who, if you recall, had written that a schismatic bishop had no authority, and thus any ordinance or ordination that he performed was invalidated. And so the Donatists appealed to that, and they said that this meant that Sicilian was invalid because Felix was invalid. 
But Sicilian responded and said, no, the problem is you, Donatists, you're the ones who are guilty of schism. There was an election. I was elected to be the bishop. You created a schism. You divided the church by having a separate election. So you're the ones who are dividing the church. I'm not the one who's invalid. You are. Now, there's a whole lot more intrigue in the story. <coughs> Excuse me. For example, many of the Donatists were so passionate about martyrdom that when persecution ended, they were kind of sad. They didn't get a chance to die for Christ. So they took up swords to fight for their cause and they said, if we die fighting for Christ, that's martyrdom. And then other Donatists said, well, that's a bit too risky. What if you win the war? Then you don't get to die. That's a chance we can't take. So they threw themselves off a cliff to achieve martyrdom. Now, honestly, if you just throw yourself off a cliff and you scream, Jesus, take the wheel, that's not martyrdom. What is that? That's just suicide, right? That's all that is. And, uh, and so uh, in addition to all of this, many of the Donatists had themselves handed over scripture. Many of them were traditores, were uh, traitors. And one of their leaders, a, a leading uh, Donatist leader, his name was Purpurius, he had actually murdered a couple of people. So moral purity really wasn't the only thing happening here. There were these complex economic, political, and social issues, but that's a bit too minute for us to talk about now. But there were lots of issues, but there's also this theological question that needed answering because it wasn't only about the validity of sacraments and bishops, but also about the very nature of the church and church membership. So this was a big deal. Both the Donatists and the Catholics, as their opponents were called, were appealing to Cyprian and a stalemate sort of resulted until in stepped, who do you think? St. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo, kind of like John Wayne sauntering into town. And one thing you should know is that Hippo, where Augustine uh, labored, like Carthage, was in North Africa on the Mediterranean. The distance from Hippo to Carthage was roughly the same distance as from uh, Dallas to Austin. So this dispute was kind of right on Augustine's doorstep. And Augustine's response is really helpful. He said the validity of a rite or a ritual of the church does not depend on the moral qualifications of the one administering it. He said that the sacrament works on account of the one who, whose sacrament it is, which is Christ, rather than the person who administers it, who is a pastor or a priest or a bishop. The phrase that he used was ex opera operato, that it works on account of the work, which is work, versus ex opera operantis, which means that the sacrament works on account of the work of the one who works, on account of the bishop, on account of the, uh, the pastor or the priest or whatever. And so think about the consequences of that if that's not actually true. We saw this scandal recently, if you've paid attention to kind of Christian culture, a well-known Christian apologist who was found to have led this horrifically immoral, duplicitous life so what about all the people who were saved by listening to him? Is their salvation invalidated? What about those whom he might have baptized? Do they need to be rebaptized? This is huge. In my own life, the guy who baptized me years later went through a bit of a morally disqualifying scandal. So does this mean I need to be rebaptized? Or our very own Jared Lawson, the guy who led him to Christ and baptized him has now completely renounced the faith. True story. Does that mean that Jared's baptism and even his conversion is invalid. Or what about yourself? Think about it like this. If, what if the person who baptized you has some sort of moral failure somewhere down the line? 
Now imagine, what if that never becomes public? Do you just live your entire life with fear that maybe your baptism is actually invalid and you don't even know it? Or maybe the communion that you're taking each week is actually invalid and you don't know it. This is what the Donatist controversy is all about. So Augustine takes up his pen. He writes seven books on the topic, which should have been titled Overkill, but instead it's called On Baptism. And in summary, Augustine sides against the Donatists for a couple of reasons. Number one, he says the church is not a society of perfect saints. He said it's a mixed body of saints and sinners. He used the analogy of wheat and weeds. And he says that Donatists have failed to live up to their own standards. If the church is only for those of impeccable moral standing, then the Donatists stand self-accused. And then secondly, he says that schism and handing over books are both bad. He says, but schism is so much worse. Thus, the Donatists are actually guilty of a greater sin. Yes, the traitors, the traditores who had handed over scripture or whatever it might be, they had sinned, but that doesn't justify the even greater sin of literally dividing the church. That was Augustine's argument. This became the predominant view of the church for both good and bad. There's good and bad that comes uh, as a result of that. For good, and that it gives comfort to the Christian that, that their baptism, their communion is not dependent on the personal holiness of the one administering it. Your baptism, your communion, your ordination for ministry or whatever it is, is dependent on the merits of Christ, not on the merits of your pastor or your priest or whatever it might be. But it's also... Negative, there are some negative consequences that come about, uh, especially that it opens the door for sacramentalism, which we'll talk about uh, later in the semester. It was also negative in that it provides this philosophical plank for paedo-baptism. All right, remember Augustine said that the church is intentionally intended to be this, uh, this wheat and weeds, this mixed body of believers and unbelievers. And, uh, and so if the church is intended to be a mixed congregation of believers and unbelievers, then there's no problem baptizing unbelieving children. This is a profound difference between infant baptism, which is called paedo-baptism, and believer's baptism, which is called credo-baptism. Both... Credo-Baptists and Pado-Baptists would admit that unbelievers uh, are possibly in their membership, that, uh, that both would admit that unbelievers are members of their churches, but for Pado-Baptism, there's a difference because that is intentional. They intentionally open the door for unbelievers to join through infant baptism, whereas for those who practice believer's baptism, unbelievers aren't intentionally added, they simply fall through the cracks inadvertently. In other words, unbelieving members is an unfortunate bug to kind of the credo-baptist operating system, but for the paedo-baptist, it's an essential feature of the software. So that's one of the problems. Another uh, uh, kind of implication or consequence of this is that, uh, that's actually helpful, is that Augustine's approach to the Donatist uh, controversy provides this opportunity for him to develop his just war theory. If you recall, some of the more rigorous Donatists were really sad they didn't get martyred and so they kind of took up arms and that led Augustine to take up his pen and to develop a just war theory which has influenced the church for 1700 years now. If you want to know what that entails, just war theory and all that kind of stuff, Zach did a really good teaching on that last semester so go listen to that. But a final consequence of this controversy is that it's one of the fountainheads for the practice of penance and the entire penitential 
system that uh, was one of the marks of uh, medieval Roman Catholic theology that we'll talk about in the, uh, the weeks ahead. But that's the Donatist controversy. Augustine's view essentially wins over the church. Donatism is weakened, but it's only because the church is already split at this point. It's only after uh, Islam uh, conquers North Africa in the late seventh century that Donatism finally disappears uh, completely. That's Donatism. The second, even more influential and important controversy we wanna discuss is Pelagianism, which was a synthesis of the ideas of three different men, Celestius, Rufinus, and Pelagius. Who was Pelagius? Well, he was born somewhere around 350, died somewhere around 425. Nobody knows exactly when he was born or, uh, or died. For reference, he's roughly contemporaneous with Augustine, who was about 354 to 430. And so Pelagius was this British monk who taught in Rome and then he fled to North Africa. You'll see North Africa come up a number of times. Fled to North Africa in 410. And as a monk, he cherished morality. That's really important to recognize. His love for morality is what drives him, but it actually drives him to legalism. That was the setting for the dispute known as Pelagianism. In short, Pelagianism is about the nature of sin, the nature of man, the nature of grace, and thus the nature of the gospel. If you, if you remember when we've discussed Trinitarian and Christological heresies, all of the heresies of the early church somehow distort this image of the creator reaching down to save creatures. In essence, they suggest that the creatures must reach up to the creator for salvation. So Arianism says that Jesus is a creature. And so it's this image of the creature has to reach up to uh, creation. And so Pelagianism does that as well. It's the creature reaching up to the creator rather than the creator condescending to save man. So let me say up front, if you're gonna remember two names, we've talked about a lot of heretics over this semester, if you're gonna remember two names of heretics whose heresies have exerted the most negative influence and most pervasive influence over church history, those names are Arius and Pelagius. Pelagius is to church history what Toby Flinderson is to Michael Scott. He is the worst. Next to Arius, he is absolutely the worst. And so what did Pelagius believe and teach? Well, as mentioned, he was a monk. So he was known, he was renowned for his piety, for his austerity, for his morality. And he kind of believed that hype about himself. He thought that his piety was a result of his own effort. In fact, he saw all of the Christian life as this constant effort to overcome sin, to attain salvation, to improve himself. So that will become important for understanding the heresy that's associated with his name. So I'm gonna sum up Pelagianism like four dominoes. Imagine these four dominoes and they're all lined up in a row and as one falls over, it necessarily topples the next and so forth. And so those four dominoes are the nature of sin, the nature of the will, the nature of grace, and the nature of justification. Now, which domino is first isn't as important. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Did Pelagius had a deficient view of sin and therefore he had a deficient view of grace? Or did he have a deficient view of grace and therefore a deficient view of sin? It doesn't matter which is the cause, which is the effect. For our purposes, it isn't important. What is important is that you see that once one domino falls, the others necessarily follow along. And so I'm gonna start with sin just because we have to start somewhere. And I'm gonna argue that because Pelagius gets sin wrong, 
He thus gets the human will wrong, and that then distorts the nature of grace, and that then perverts the understanding of salvation because those are all related. You can't topple one without knocking down the others in the process. Let's begin with the nature of sin. If you've grown up in church, you're probably familiar with the doctrine of original sin, which is the idea that the sin of Adam has so contaminated, it's condemned and it's contaminated his posterity, that we're born with the stain of sin. Well, Pelagius rejected that doctrine. In fact, he thought that the doctrine of transmitted sin or original sin was blasphemous. He said that people are not born with a sin nature. Sin is not something that we inherit. It's something we merely imitate. So this is his words. It is said we sinned in Adam, not because sin is innate, but because it comes from imitation. So you might then ask, if sin is not inherited, why is it so prevalent? Why is it so powerful? Well, I'm glad you asked. Pelagius would say, I'll tell you why. Again, his words. For no other cause occasions us the difficulty of doing good than the, quote, long custom of vices, which has infected us from childhood and gradually, through many years, corrupted us, and thus holds us afterward bound and addicted to itself, so that it seems in some way to have the force of nature. Notice that, what he said, it's the long custom of vices, it's habit. Why do you sin according to Pelagius? Not because of an original corruption of your soul or your nature, but because of bad habits. Sin is like muscle memory. It's hard to overcome, but it can be with righteous, rigorous effort and discipline. So man isn't born sinful. By the way, man isn't born good either, according to Pelagius. Man is morally neutral. And by discipline, he can incline towards uh, good or evil. So sin, according to Pelagius, is powerful, but it's not universal. In fact, (coughs) He actually believed that at least a few men, if not uh, many, were effectively sinless, particularly Old Testament saints. So when he would read the Bible and he'd read about people being blameless, he thought that meant sinless, even though the Bible describes certain men as blameless, even though it also mentions their sin. But that was Pelagius' presumption. Now, not to just jump immediately from sin to salvation, but you can see how the entire understanding of the gospel begins to unravel if you lose the doctrine of sin. If some people are or can be sinless, then in what sense is Christ their savior? You you can see how once you topple that domino of sin, salvation is going to eventually fall as well. This is why Pelagianism is considered a heresy and not just an error. So according to Pelagianism, we're sinners because we sin, not we sin because we're sinners. Our actions precede our identity. Now, Pelagius <coughs> is in North Africa around this time. So again, this is right on Augustine's doorstep and it's spreading like wildfire. People love them some Pelagianism. And why wouldn't they? It's a very man-centered sort of teaching. It, it makes you feel like you're in control. That's the, the, the premise of the entire belief. Uh, that's also the premise of sin, by the way. The essence of sin is basically man's attempt to be in control, to be autonomous, to be in control of our own destiny and so forth. So Pelagianism appeals to our kind of base desires as fallen sinners. And so it's pervasive, it's spreading around uh, throughout the area. And so Augustine needs to response, 
uh, needs to respond, and his response is, I don't think we're reading the same Bible. When I read the Bible, or even when I observe the world, I see that sin isn't something that we have to learn. It's something we possess from birth. Any amen from parents, right? He also says sin is universal to mankind, Christ excluded, because it's something that we inherit. We have a sin nature. We're dead in our trespasses. We aren't morally neutral. We're morally corrupted. We are by nature sinful from birth. By the way, a lot of us grew up hearing and believing in a, quote, age of accountability. That's actually Pelagian. The idea that infants are sinless until some unspecified period in time is actually historically heretical. Can God save infants who die? Absolutely. But is it because those infants are sinless? Absolutely not. It's because God is sovereign and God is gracious and God is good. We have a blog on what happens to infants when they die. But back to Augustine versus Pelagius. Pelagius kind of thought of the church as this country club, this country club for the morally righteous. And Augustine said, that's hogwash. The church isn't a country club. It's a hospital for injured and recovering sinners. But if sin is so pervasive, what does that mean about our will? Do we have free will, free will or do we not? That's the second domino in the Pelagian system. Pelagius writes this, <clears throat> a sin propagated by generation is totally contrary to the Catholic faith. Sin is not born with man, but is committed afterwards by man, is not a fault of nature, but of free will. Again, but we say that man is always able both to sin and not to sin. Notice that, man is always able both to sin and not to sin so that we confess ourselves to have always a free will. So for Pelagius, his operating assumption is that for God to command something, you must be fully able to do what God has commanded. He wrote, God is not willed to command anything impossible for God is righteous and will not condemn anyone for what they could not help for God is holy. And this is in stark contrast to Augustine who wrote this prayer in his confessions, you might have heard it before, but he wrote, give what you command and command what you will. And that idea, give what you command and command what you will is preposterous. It's blasphemous for Pelagius. Of course God would give what he commands. He'd never ask you to do anything you couldn't fully do in every sense of the word. So there is between Augustine and Pelagius this deep division regarding the nature of man's Will And the root of the controversy comes down to this. How can God be sovereign if man is responsible for his sin? And this was actually Augustine's second foray into that discussion. The first was when he rebuked his former views called Manichaeanism, which involved this view of fatalism that said God is sovereign, but therefore man isn't responsible for sin. And Augustine took up his pen, wrote against that and said that is uh, heretical, but Pelagianism is on the opposite end of the spectrum. It swings the pendulum and says that man is so responsible for his actions, both good or bad, that we therefore need to redefine what we mean by God's sovereignty. We've talked before about how heresy is this attempt to minimize the mystery. And that's what Pelagianism does. Augustine was fine with the mystery. God is absolutely and utterly sovereign and yet man is somehow responsible for his sin. 
We aren't mere puppets. We aren't mere robots or something like that. How both of those things can be true is mysterious, and yet we confess both. God is absolutely sovereign. You do not, to one iota, decrease his sovereignty, but man is ultimately responsible for his sin. You do not, to one iota, decrease that view. How both of those are true is mysterious, and yet we confess both. That's a view called compatibilism. I don't understand how we can fit those two things together logically, and yet I don't deny or redefine either of them. But Pelagius says both of those things can't be true. I don't understand how they could both be true, so I'm going to preserve man's rights and man's authority, even if that dilutes God's. So he minimizes the mystery by redefining or rejecting biblical truth, especially as it relates to God's sovereignty. So interestingly, both Augustine and Pelagius would affirm that we have, quote, free will. They just mean something entirely different by that phrase. Pelagius meant that men were free to do moral evil or good, that there was nothing influencing the will except the will itself. Remember, there's no original sin which is incapacitating mankind. So imagine this pair of uh, balanced scales. With each action, Man kind of decides what he wants to do and he does it. He's free to do good or he's free to do evil. Nothing is influencing him except his own will. And Augustine, though, uses that same imagery, but he adds this very important nuance. Suppose that scale isn't balanced. In fact, suppose that one side of the scale is fitted with hundreds of, uh, of pre-existing pounds. Now when you make a decision, the scale still works. It still works but it's nonetheless debilitated, right? You have freedom, but your freedom is limited by sin such that all that you desire is sin. That's Augustine's view of free will, that yes, you have freedom to make choices, but all of the choices that you make are ultimately under your sin nature. And so everything that you do is sin. Furthermore, we have to take into account that the will functions differently depending on who we're talking about. Are we talking about Adam and his will before sin entered into the world? Or are we talking about the will of a, uh, of a regenerate believer? Or are we talking about the, the will of after the fall uh, of an unregenerate person? Before we can say what the will is like, we need to know who we're talking about. Before the fall, Adam had the ability to sin and he had the ability not to sin. In a lot of ways, Pelagius' view of the will actually works here. Adam doesn't have a sin nature originally. He isn't born into depravity. He's created good and has freedom to sin or not to sin. The problem is that that's no longer true once the fall occurs. And that's Pelagius' problem. After the fall, Adam and his posterity are not able to not sin. We're totally depraved. Everything we do is motivated by something other than faith and the glory of God. And thus everything we do biblically is Sin. Now, thankfully, in redemption, we have restored ability to do good. So when we are regenerate, when we're born again, we have this restored ability to do good. And then finally, in glorification, at the consummation, we will have this greater ability that will be the inability to sin. Not being able to sin is actually the highest freedom. The greatest freedom is not the freedom to sin or not to sin, which is kind of Pelagius' view, The greatest freedom is found in being entirely a slave to Christ. 
See, sin isn't freedom. Sin itself is slavery. Being able to sin is actually a form of slavery. After all, who is the freest being in the entire universe? Well, it's God. And yet God can't sin. So in short, Augustine's view of sin is that the sin, sinner wills nothing but sin. You can do good in some social sense, but not in the sense of moral good before God. Now, which of these views sounds more biblical, Augustine's or Pelagius? Look at Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Pelagius says, but I seek for God. Paul says, no one seeks for God. Romans 8, 7 through 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Pelagius' whole thing is it has to be able to do so. Paul says it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not just habits, you're dead following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's universal. So now you can see what you think of sin, what you think of man's ability, affects what you think of grace. As Augustine says, aid must be given to the weakness of the human will, in order that divine grace may be inexorably and invincibly effective. So let's talk about grace. Pelagius believed in grace. If you ask Pelagius, hey Pelagius, do you believe in grace? He would say, yes. But again, he just is going to redefine it. For him, God's grace consists of four main categories. The fact that God created you. The fact that God gave you life is grace. The fact that we have free will that hasn't been corrupted by sin, according to Pelagius, is grace. God's law Things like the Ten Commandments, those are grace. The coming of Christ to teach and to set a good example for you is grace. So notice this common element that grace for Pelagius is merely God's revealing to us what our duties are. Grace doesn't actually assist us in accomplishing those responsibilities. Grace for Pelagius is something that's external and something that's passive. So Augustine reads Pelagius talking about grace and he says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Grace isn't merely external and passive. It's internal and it's active. Grace isn't merely a command. Grace is God's act whereby he transforms you so that you can respond to God's commands. Again, the prayer, give what you command and command what you give. That was Augustine's prayer in Confessions. Unless you give me the means to keep the command, I'm in trouble because I'm a sinner. I can't keep God's commands on my own. But for Pelagius, you don't need grace to obey God's commands. For Pelagius, the command itself is the grace. Now, what's Pelagius' big fear? We've talked about this before, but heretics aren't trying to hurt the church. They're actually trying to help. They're driven by fear. For example, Arius thinks that if you say that Jesus is God, this will lead to idolatry. It will rob the, the father of worship. Well, what's Pelagius' fear? Remember, he is very strict in regards to morality and leading a very rigorous life. And so Pelagius' fear is that if you view grace through this Augustinian lens, that it will lead to licentiousness, which is the same argument, by the way, uh, as those who hated Paul's preaching on grace. Why not sin all the more so that grace may abound? 
By the way, lest you think that this is just some historic, irrelevant sort of lesson, ask yourself, do you tend to think that if you really give someone grace, if you really stress grace as being completely unmerited favor, that it will lead to license? If you tell someone they're free to take a drink, that they'll get drunk? That if you tell someone they can listen to, quote, secular music, they're gonna worship Satan? That's legalism. This is this Pelagian view of grace, not a biblical one. So when you've distorted sin, when you've distorted the will, when you've distorted grace, the result is this deficient view of justification or salvation and the gospel. So follow up the logic here. If men are not necessarily bound to sin from birth, some men are even able to achieve sinlessness by their own effort. And if our wills are not corrupted by sin, and if grace isn't God's unmerited favor, but it's God's commands, then obviously salvation becomes something else. As Herman Bovink wrote, Pelagianism makes everything wobbly and uncertain. Even the victory of the good and the triumph of the kingdom of God because it hangs everything on the incalculable arbitrariness of humans. Standing up for the rights of humankind, it tramples on the rights of God. And for humans, ends up with no more than the right to be fickle. In other words, in Pelagianism, God isn't really the effective agent in your salvation. You are. You do all the stuff. Rather than the gospel, which is that God does all the stuff. And then when you reinterpret the gospel, you have to therefore reinterpret the life and death of Christ. So Alistair McGrath writes this about what Pelagianism entails. Jesus Christ, according to Pelagianism, is involved in salvation only to the extent that he reveals by his actions and teaching exactly what God requires of the individual. In other words, salvation is not by grace alone, through the finished work of Christ alone, but by man's self-effort through imitating the example of Christ. We ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? We roll up our sleeves, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and then we do it. So salvation is on the basis of merit. It's earned, it's deserved. It isn't a gift, it's a wage. That's why this is heresy. Again, this isn't a mere quarreling over words. This is like Paul saying, if salvation is obtainable through the law, then Christ is of no benefit. At its heart, the gospel means that the creator has condescended to work salvation for his creation. But Pelagius' gospel is that creature ascends to the creator by means of their own works. Thus you should see Pelagianism is an inversion of the gospel and thus a perversion of the gospel. It's an anti-gospel. It's a heresy. And Augustine knows that. He says salvation is entirely of grace, beginning to end. He writes this, human nature was certainly originally created blameless and without any fault, but the human nature by which each one of us is now born of Adam requires a physician. Again, notice that. Original creation versus fallen creation. You gotta notice that. The fall has profoundly in, uh, affected humankind. Human nature was originally created blameless and thus without any fault, but the human nature by which each one of us is now born of Adam requires a physician because it is not healthy. All the good things which it has by its conception, life, senses, and mind, it has from God, its creator and maker. But the weakness which darkens and disables these good natural qualities as a, as a result of, uh, of which that nature needs enlightenment and healing did not come from the blameless maker, 
but from original sin, which was committed by free will, Adam's free will, but God who is rich in mercy on account of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our sins, raised us up with Christ by whose grace we are saved. But this grace of Christ without which neither infants nor grown persons can be saved is not bestowed as a reward for merits, but is given freely, gratis, which is why it is called grace gratia. As Bavink says, Jesus Christ did not pronounce blessed the self-righteous, but the poor in spirit and the meek. He came not to call the righteous, but publicans and sinners to repentance, to seek and to save what is lost. The grace of God in Christ, grace that is full, abundant, free, omnipotent, and insuperable, this is the heart of the gospel. In other words, the more you make of yourself, the more you make of your will, the more you make of your action, the more you make of your decision, the more you make of your faith or your works, the less you make of God and his grace. Now, we mentioned last week that unfortunately, Augustine doesn't put all of the grace eggs in the faith basket. He believed in salvation by grace alone, but not justification by faith alone. We won't really bask in that freedom until Luther in the Reformation. For Augustine, grace is instead to be found in the sacraments, so it isn't great because that and his response to the Donatism controversy provides strong influence towards medieval sacramentalism of the Roman Catholic Church, but at least he preserves the necessity of grace, and the result was that Pelagian views were officially condemned by several councils at Milev in 416, Carthage in 418, the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and again at the Synod of Orange in 529. So Augustine technically won, and yet some accused him of being an innovator in these doctrines and his views were kind of reinterpreted to get rid of predestination and hints of things like that. And the result was this kind of semi-Augustinian, semi-Pelagian hybrid that would kind of grow up through the Middle Ages. And though it was condemned, Pelagianism never really dies. We've talked about this before. Heresies never really die. How can Pelagianism possibly die? It's just legalism, and legalism never dies. So the formal heresy of Pelagianism kind of goes dormant for various seasons, but then it pops up time and again, like a whack-a-mole game at Chuck E. Cheese. We'll see it again in the uh, Enlightenment. We'll see it again in the Great Awakening with guys like Charles Finney. And in, even today, a recent poll by Lifeway asked evangelicals, if they agreed or disagreed with this statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. They asked evangelicals that question. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 65% of people agreed. Only 14 people, only 14 people, only 14% strongly disagreed. That is Pelagianism. So in conclusion, (coughs) Pelagianism, Donatism, two of the major controversies most associated with the legacy of Augustine. As mentioned, Donatism survives for a while. It eventually dies completely once Northern Africa is conquered by the Muslims. And we'll talk about the rise of Islam next week. Let's pray and we might have time for one, maybe two questions. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for the influence of, uh, of guys like Augustine with all of his warts and all of his flaws, yet the church is so much better for it, and so we're grateful for the reality of grace, not grace that is uh, in the, the vein of uh, Pelagius' thought, but grace in this Augustinian sense, grace that is omnipotent and good and, uh, and all-pervasive, and so we're grateful that you are a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and we pray that you'd help us to believe that, to receive that, to treasure that. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.